bring the third part of this series, small series, inside the larger series called Our Representative. To get today, we are going to complete, by God's grace, our look at this section of Romans 5. And by completing this section, we will be transitioning from Paul's steady argument for justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, into an extended section on the sanctification that results from our justification and is rooted in our justification. Don't worry, this won't be the last time you're turned back to look at justification. Because here's the thing, and, and we've heard it over and over from some of you, like, can we move on to like what we're supposed to be doing? And the problem with that reflex which we have is that that sounds like, and sometimes in our hearts, if we're honest, we're kind of there. It's like I'm bored with the fact that Jesus did everything for me to save me. And now I want to go get busy doing a bunch of stuff. And then, that, then God will be happy with me. Or then I can feel better about myself. Or you fill in the blank. There's a lot of reasons why we do it. But all of those reasons are sinful. Because the man who rightly understands who he is outside of Christ and understands who Christ is on his behalf before the Father and what he's done to earn, to work for our salvation. That man that rightly understands those things will live the rest of his life amazed, standing in the presence of a glorious Savior. And all of the work that he does will stand or fall on that one thing, that Jesus Christ died for me. So we're not going to be done with justification. We're going to keep talking about justification. But we are next week going to transition into a, another small series within the larger series, and it'll be on the holiness that we all need, that we all must be transformed into, based and rooted in our justification. But before the intensity of focus on the reality of our being made right with God shifts ever so slightly to how we are day by day made more into the image of God, Paul wants to magnify the greatness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. He wants readers to never forget that they are experiencing the abundance of God's amazing grace and that this grace is infinite. We're made right with God by His grace, which reigns through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, leading to eternal life. This is breathtaking when we pause to think about it. In this chapter, Paul began by describing us in our pre-Christ state with these words. Weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies of God. This is who we are based on our first representative, Adam, who sinned at the foot of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when he sinned, death entered the world through that one man's one act of sin. And that one man's one act of sin spread to all men, and that's proven because all men die. They're all born in him, and they all die in him. This is an utterly Hopeless, remember, the whole theme of chapter 5 is the hope that we can have in the gospel. 
But it's hopeless to be outside of the gospel, isn't it? It's hopeless. It's a hopeless situation because it's not the many daily decisions to sin, mainly against God, these small decisions on a daily basis that we have to remedy, cure. Paul says that the root of the problem is that we are all born in Adam and therefore we are all condemned because his sin, Adam's sin, has been imputed, counted to us. I know that some of this still feels very unfair to us. And we might even want to argue with Paul because surely if we could just refrain from sinning and make ourselves better people, then God would be pleased with us. First of all, if you think that that type of thing, when you are sorely, then, then I want you to know you're sorely mistaken in your understanding of your ability to resist sin. Let's get real for a minute. Let's, let's now I don't, I'm a presuppositionalist, I don't like to do this, but I'm going to give the argument to you. Let's say, let's say that you could from today on not sin. You could resist sin. What I'm saying, what Paul is saying is, in terms of your standing with God, it won't make one bit of difference. Because when you were born, you were born in Adam, and Adam sinned, representing you before God. When he sinned, you sinned with him. What do sinners do to deserve to go to hell? They are born. So if you have a shallow view of sin, you will not glory in a great Savior. If you don't understand the depth, that's what Paul's trying to say, of what it took to save you as a sinner, how will you ever stay amazed at the grace of God to save you? A shallow view of sin brings a shallow and insufficient view of how great a Savior Jesus really is. <sighs> but even more than that, you're not understanding what the Bible teaches us is the core problem of humanity. The core problem of humanity is that our heart, our inner man, is against God and toward evil. Jesus taught his disciples this. He taught them this again and again. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, Jesus says some very controversial things even to our day. He says this, if you lust after a woman, then pluck out your eye. If you sin with your hand, cut off your hand. For it's better to enter into eternity less a few members because you've been warring against your sin than to die a whole person and go to hell. And some of us, when we read that passage, we wrongly understand that what Jesus is actually offering us is a pathway to salvation. Now, you don't believe it enough because all of you still have your hands and you still have your eyes. But that's what you think. And that's how you fight sin. Oh, if I can just put a high enough wall between me and all this stuff out here. If I could just get a high enough wall, then I wouldn't sin. 
You're reading the passage wrong. You're reading the passage wrong. Why do I say that? Because when Jesus is teaching on the core problem of humanity, he's focused not on what the little actions are that they do in their sin, but rather who they are inside of themselves. Now, I don't want to get off track because it's crucial that we get to the point of this sermon, but you won't get that point unless you get this point. We have all inherited the sin of our representative Adam, and when we are born, we are born on a path to destruction and sin from our first breath that we draw as babies. Our problem is not environmental mainly. It's not mainly an issue of outward conformity to a better life, moral life that we need to lead. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 7, 14 through 23. He called the people to him again and said then, Hear me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going in them can defile them. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. And he said to them, Then are you without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes in a person from, with, from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart? Do you see that? What comes from outside doesn't enter the heart, but the stomach, he's talking about food, and is expelled. Thus he said all food is clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. What comes out of him? For from within, out of the heart of man. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. When we sin, we're often tempted to say, well, if I wouldn't have sinned if it she wouldn't have been dressed like that. I wouldn't have sinned, but the computer was left unpassword protected. I wouldn't have sinned and gotten angry, but that guy doesn't know how to drive. And what Jesus is saying is, all of those other things out there, all they did was give you an opportunity to show who you are at your core. All of that stuff out there just said, look at you. You're a blithering mess. You're an awful person. You're lost and without hope in yourself. That's all it did. Jesus' teaching in this passage is confirmed by what Paul says in Romans 5. We're not made sinners by the external things that exist in the world. We are not sinners because of what we even do, but we are sinners because our hearts are are always bent toward evil and away from God. That's why we're sinners. Out of our hearts come all manner of evil thoughts, desires, words, actions. It's our hearts, our inner man, the core of who we are, the seat of the will that is our biggest problem. That's it. The heart is clearly the natural man, the flesh, the part of us that we are from the beginning of our lives. <laughs> Jesus is saying to his men and to us, the problem we face is not one that can be solved by simply ceasing from sin on the outside. 
Our problem in its most fundamental sense is that we are all corrupt in our nature, which is the case because we are all born in Adam. The result of our union, our union with Adam, is that we have all been born into sin, death, judgment, condemnation, disobedience. That's what he's just told us in 5, 12 through 19. But God. Don't you love those words, Christian? But God. Paul goes on to write the good news to us as hopeless wretches that we are, bound up in the sinful clutches of our father's sin. Paul wants us to have hope. How does he do it? How does he tell us this? Well, he tells us in this passage that the one man doesn't, that one man, Adam, does not have the last word. There's another representative. And in this one man's life, one can receive the free gift, grace of God, justification, righteousness, obedience, and eternal life. Where Adam failed by choosing to disobey God by eating the forbidden fruit of the tree, the second Adam succeeded by choosing to obey God the Father for his entire life. Adam's heart became desperately wicked because of sin, and we inherited a completely wicked heart from Adam, but Jesus' pure heart of perfect obedience never wavered in following the perfect commands of God the Father. Therefore, when we are in Christ, we receive this perfect record of righteousness as a gift free to us by the grace of God. This is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that a wretch like me can be saved. That's the gospel. Paul says if you're in Christ, then you have received the super abounding grace of God that leads to eternal life. You have been transferred from the representation of Adam to the representation of Christ. And that makes all the difference in God's sight. Paul summarized it for us in verses 18 through 19. Look at it in the text. Therefore, as one trespass, one trespass. Notice, he emphasizes one trespass. Not many trespasses. Not, not your trespasses. One trespass by one man, and his name was Adam. By one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness, not your righteousness, not your good deeds, not anything you can do for yourself, but one act of righteousness by one righteous man, second Adam. By one righteous act, it leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. All who are under Adam have received the one trespass and are condemned. Hopeless. All who are under Christ have received righteousness and are justified. Hope. Paul would say to us, if you are outside of Christ, still in union with the first Adam, you need to know that and you need to believe in Jesus Christ. As the representative. Literally, take your hands off of Adam and put your hands by faith on Christ. Switch lanes. Get out of the voting line with Adam and let Christ vote for you. Don't speak with your first father blasphemies to God, but stand 
in Christ and let him speak the praise of God on your behalf. That's what Paul is saying for us, church. And so if you're here today and you're not in Christ, you need to be in Christ. God wants you to be in Christ, but if you're in Christ, you'll be tempted like me because you still sin to doubt that you're in Christ and you'll begin to lose hope. And so he's reminding you, don't lose hope. When you sin, it is coming up out of the old man. Recognize that and land firmly on the grace of God. And call on Jesus who is mighty to save you from your sin. That's hope. That's hope. Now, today, we're going to turn to the last two verses in this chapter for the climax of the argument that we have been studying together. Paul writes in verses 20 and 21, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, a purpose, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Today, I want us to see two simple yet profound truths from these two verses. I want us to end by celebrating the greatness of Jesus. So let's get started. Our condition, our condition according to this passage, as children of Adam was grave, and the law came alongside the situation to increase the sinfulness of sin. We were in Adam. And it was grave. In other words, it was death. And what happened is the law came in beside it so that our sin would be more sinful. Now, I'm going to talk about the law today. There are a lot of reasons that the Bible says God gave the law. I'm not going to talk about all the reasons of the law. I know some of you are going to cut me off because it offends you. And you're going to run to Psalm 119 and talk about how David gloried in the law. And what I would say to you, if you would listen to me, is that one of the things he gloried in about the law is that the law made him know how big a sinner he really was. So I'm only talking about one aspect of why God gave us the law. I realize there's a lot of things that are said, but we're just going to focus on this one because it's enough, okay? And if we get it, it'll be transforming to us. Paul says that the law came in. The word here is from the same root word translated for us in verse 12. So look back at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world, just as sin came into the world, which spoke to a change in condition, a change in reality, a change which happened because Adam sinned. And sin through Adam came into the world. Okay? That's the root word. That's what it is. It came into and it's reflected in verse 20 because it says came in. And so in Greek, you need Greek to understand fully what this is saying. The translation in English is good, but, but it needs to be explained. Which is why I'm standing here. Hopefully. In verse 20, Paul doesn't write the same word that he wrote in verse 12. He writes the same root word, but he adds a prefix to it. Para. The word means the, alongside. Alongside. So, what he's saying is that the headship of Adam had led to the fallen nature, original sin, being passed down to all men 
by which no one can please God in their flesh. All humanity is completely sinful in every part of our beings because of Adam. Corruption is capped off by death because all men are counted sinners in Adam. What does the law have to do with this situation, Carlton? I'm so glad you asked. The verse says that the law came in beside the sinful condition. It came alongside sin. So that sin would be exceedingly and abundantly sinful. Which makes no sense right now, but it will. The law makes sin known. It makes the sinner feel guilt in his conscience. And it makes the heart, due to the fallenness of our sinful nature, it makes the heart desire more sin. We're not going to deal with all of those today, but we are going to make sure we understand the law came alongside sinfulness to make the situation from bad to worse. Back to, that's not a hopeful word. Do <laughs> you see what Paul's doing? He told you a hopeful word, and then he backed up and said, Now, I know you Jews, because I used to be one of you. You're going to bring up, aha, you talked about Adam, you went to Jesus, but you've forgotten our brother Paul all about this law thing. He says, Oh, no, I didn't forget about it. I didn't forget about it. The law that you Jews, even some of the Christian Jews were beginning to think they could save themselves by being good according to the law. Paul says, it didn't make things better. It made things worse. Let me give an example so that maybe it will make more sense to you. Um, and if, if you don't connect with this, I'm sorry. Maybe come to me later. I'll come up with a better one for you. I don't know. But this just comes from me. I spent a lot of time as a kid in the woods hunting. I loved to hunt. And I would often be on the property that we had permission to hunt on. And I knew that in general, I was getting close to the property line. In general. You know what that means? I didn't really care. Because the guy next to us and ourselves did not put a fence up. So I hunted freely. Though in my mind and in my heart, even as a kid, I would think often... Boy, I hope I'm not all across the line. Sure is a lot of deer sign over here. You know, and so we, I hunted, I fudged. I'd, I'd just go a little further, go a little further. Right? There's no fence between the property, so I can hunt on the neighbor's property or my property, and I don't really know where the line is. But I know there's a line, and I kind of feel like I might have gone against the line. But, I mean, you know who's counting? Let's just keep going. Nobody's counting. Nobody's paying attention. And as I hunt, I wonder, I wander over the property line. In my heart, in my heart, I know I've done it. I know I have. But there's not a fence, and there's no, no trespassing sign. And so I convince myself that even if I did go on his property and the landowner shows up, I have an excuse. I didn't know. But then one day I come to my favorite place to hunt. And as I'm walking there, there's a fence. And there's a no trespassing sign. When I climb over the fence and disregard the sign, 
my trespass has happened. You see what I'm saying? Before there was an offense and a, a clear demarcation of the line, I kind of played around the edges. I went in and out. You know, yeah, it's probably not good, but uh, it'll be okay. But then the owner of the property put up a barrier and said, do not come in here. If I lay my gun on the ground and slide under that fence and go on and hunt my favorite spot, I have become exceedingly more sinful than before because I'm doing it willfully. I'm not only sinning, but I'm trespassing against that landowner. I was sinning all the time, but because I was going on the neighbor's land without any permission, but without any lines, it wasn't as egregious as when there's a clear line. You see what I'm saying? The difference is the action didn't change. I was sinning all the time, but when the fence went up, it became more sinful because it was clear. It was obvious. It was known. This is what the law did. It came alongside our sinfulness, our condition of fallen man, and it's a fence and a posted sign that says, keep out. This is God's righteousness on display. This makes sin more sinful. <laughs> what, does, what those before the law and after Adam did against God was sinful. Don't misunderstand Paul. It was sinful. He's already said that in verse 13. For his sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But notice what he says. Sin is not counted. It's not imputed where there's no law. It's not in the ledger book. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the trespass of Adam. So, they were all sinning against God all the time. They knew from their own hearts that they were probably over the line, but without the law, they were unclear about the boundaries of righteousness. The law made sin clear. So the first thing we see in these verses and the thing it's teaching us is that the law came alongside the sinful condition of mankind and sin became exceedingly and abundantly sinful. The law came in to increase the trespass. That's what it means, I think. Now, I want to take an aside right here because I think it's important and I'll try to do it quickly. Listen to this. It seems like the church, some of us families, and especially the world, think that the right way to reform sin in the world is to educate people. Let me give you an example. Before the 1960s, there was no, as far as I know, there was no widespread movement, at least, of sex education in public schools. Were kids back then doing inappropriate things and fornicating? The answer is yes, we never lived in Mayberry. But is the situation worse now? Yes. Why? I, there's a lot of reasons, but one is, I think, we started educating lost, sinful people about the thing they weren't supposed to do. So what did they do? The thing we told them not to do. The warnings only made them see the sin, know the sin, and want the sin. Because that's what we all do. 
So parents, when you raise your children only on moral, only on moralism, what you are actually doing is damning them to hell. Because you're acting like the law, and the only thing the law can do is show them how sinful they are, give them full knowledge of it, and make them want to go after it. So that's why when we're parents, we not only say this is right, but we say Christ is the only one who was ever right. Come to Jesus. I'm not saying don't have rules. I'm not saying don't have morals. I'm saying your morals and your rules by themselves will only make them more sinful. But showing them the rules so that they can see the greatness of the Savior will only bring them to righteousness. This is the beauty of what Paul is teaching here, is that the law is not in itself ever intended, never was ever the way people would be saved. I know some famous preachers that preach that, and because of what the Bible says, they're wrong. They're wrong. The law was never intended by God to bring people to him in salvation in the law through keeping the law, as individual people, as Israel. Never. The law was there to help them see the exceeding sinfulness of their sin. The result of Adam's one sin was that all men were declared sinners, condemned, made disobedient, and ultimately all men faced death as a judgment on their fallen nature. The law came in so that we could clearly see the pathology of our sin. Second point. But where Adam's children had no hope in their first representative, no hope in the law of Moses, in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, everyone in him receives super abounding grace, perfect and sinless righteousness, and eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in the first part of verse 20 and the first part of 21, what he's done is said, this is what happens when the law comes in next to the sinfulness, alongside the sinfulness of Adam. It makes it worse. But in the second part of verse 20, in the second part of verse 21, he holds up Jesus, and that's where we're about to go. When the law came alongside sinful man, which made sin abound, listen to me, the grace of God super abounded. That's literally what it says. Where sin increased, grace abounded even more. Grace is increasing all the more because God's supply of grace is infinite. Infinite. Now, John Piper and others have explained this much better than I probably can, but I'm going to give it a try. I'm not a mathematician, but I do know enough to know this. When you have an infinite and you take away from the infinite, Guess what? It's still what? Infinite. When I'm finite and I take away from my finiteness, my finite number, whatever it is, 10, I take one away, it's 9. But when I have an infinite and I take one away, it's still infinite. I take 10 away, it's still infinite. I take 10,000 away, it's still infinite. I take a billion away, it's still infinite. Where sin increased, grace superabounded because it's infinite. 
You cannot draw down the grace of God. It stands eternally strong and pure and limitless and boundless. This is what Paul wants us to see by showing us the awfulness of our sin and the fact the law made it worse is so we'll see that God's grace is better. God's grace is more powerful. It's infinite. It can't be lessened. Paul is saying that God's grace is so abundant that no matter the sinfulness of sin, no matter the number of times a man breaks the law, no matter how ugly and dark and perverted the human heart is because of the sin inherited from Adam and lived out against the law, grace is greater than all that sin. You literally cannot sin so openly, so defiantly, so numerously, so grievously, so pervertedly that would mean God is incapable of rescuing you from your sin because grace superabounds where sin increases. The more I think on this, the more my heart is overwhelmed with hope in the glory of the truth of God's grace. Paul is magnifying the greatness of Jesus. He's not talking yet about how justification becomes foundation for us to live a better life. That's verse, chapter 6. He's not even talking about that. These verses are not about transformation. These verses are about how Jesus is the source of all grace from God. We had a head. And he's a sinner. And we have a new head. And he is full of grace. And where sin abounds, our Savior's grace abounds much more. Much more. This is why Paul is summing up the entire first chapter, of, or the, the entire chapter of five, the first five chapters actually, with these two verses. Because he wants you to know the free gift of God's grace is named Jesus. That's his name. Paul's magnifying the greatness of Jesus. He's not talking yet about how justification becomes a foundation for holiness. That starts in 6. Paul in this chapter and in these two verses simply emphasizes in a profound way that the condition of original sin exacerbated by the coming of the law has been gloriously overcome by the superabounding grace of God which reigns through Christ's righteousness which leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what he wants us to know. Are you here saying, I know that I'm not only a sinner by birth, but I've spent my entire life magnifying sinfulness of my sin by willingly going against God's law. That's me. You're talking to me. Carlton, if you only knew just how dark, perverted, twisted, rebellious I am, there's no way you would say that I can be justified, made righteous, given eternal life, and extended grace through Jesus Christ. I deserve to die and to be eternally condemned for my sin. Some of you are saying that. You're sitting in the pew literally squirming under this kind of preaching because you're like, That's, he's talking to me and I deserve to die. And you feel completely, absolutely broken. And you're thinking, if that guy up there knew me, he wouldn't say all of us can be saved by this grace. Because I cannot be saved. What I want to tell you 
is that I absolutely know that feeling. I know how bad you are, how wicked, how perverted, how twisted, because so am I. It's not that I was that wicked in the past, but what I want you to know is that that's how wicked I am right now in my natural man. If you have a version of the gospel that means you're no longer wicked in your natural man, you have the wrong gospel. I am still the chief of sinners. I'm dark, perverted, twisted, rebellious. I, in my natural self, deserve to die. Face judgment. To be condemned to eternal hell. Because I've committed the great offenses against the great God of heaven. But God, but God, <laughs> listen to me, God has revealed to us that where all of this sin increased, grace increased more and more. Just like sin reigned over us in death, according to these verses, while we were under the law, now grace reigns through the righteousness of Christ leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. The good news that is the only hope we have is that His grace is greater than all our sin. Listen to the promise of the hymn that we're going to sing in just a few moments. Listen to the promise. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Listen to me. I don't care if you are the most strung out drug addict that has ever walked the planet, if you're a prostitute who right now is thinking about the next John you're going to go see when this service is over, or if you have murdered and you're sitting in these pews knowing, thinking, knowing I've gotten away in the court of man, but I'm going to face an eternal judgment. I don't care what your lot has been to this point. You're no different than us. Your sin is no worse than mine. And we all need the grace of God in Christ alone. And if you're sitting there in that position, I want to offer it to you. Come to Him now. There is no hope in Self-repair. There's no hope in moral living. There's no hope in finding the law and trying to do it. There's no hope in this world outside of Jesus Christ alone. Who has, for your sake, been righteous perfectly from birth until his death. And having been perfect in every way and completed the law and fulfilled it, he took off his robes of righteousness, trusted them to his Father, and was covered and clothed in 
your sin and my sin and hung on a tree. And on that tree, it pleased the Father to crush him because of you and because of me. And all of the, the guilt that we bear, he bore for us. And his Father judged him and killed him under the weight of the wrath that existed against us. And he was buried with our clothes on. He was buried in a sinner's tomb. Three days passed, and what happened? Well, he left those clothes in the grave. Why? Because they couldn't hold him. He walked out and entered into the glorious state of his earned righteousness. And God said, I am satisfied in your sacrifice, son. Oh, listen. He, on that cross, hung, suspended for you and for me and our Adamic sin. And all the little Adam sins we've committed since then. And he took them on himself and paid the price. And then, having paid the price, was buried. And being buried with him, we are raised with him. I don't want to preach Corey's message. Now listen to me. Listen to the last thing this, this, this great hymn says. Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Adam led the entire human race into sin at the foot of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when he chose to sin against God and eat the forbidden fruit. Christ, the second Adam, led those who belonged to him to infinite and eternal grace of eternal life by hanging on the ultimate tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we see in that tree the love and justice of God, satisfied, fully displayed, and superabounding in grace towards sinners like you and like me. So don't walk away. Don't walk away hopeless. Walk away with hope in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, as we close out this time in your word, having strained to further understand the infinite, glorious grace that can only be had in Christ, we admit our failure to fully plumb the depths, and yet, we Lord, thank you that where we're insufficient, you are sufficient. There are sinners in here today, sinners that are outside of Christ in Adam, and I pray you through your spirit would woo them, draw them, call them to be saved. And there are saved brothers and sisters that are living in the guilt of their sin and need to hear that while they are a great sinner, the depths and the heights and the width of your love and grace are immeasurable, immeasurable in greatness above their sin. Father, we all need this. We all need it. So we ask that you give it to us, the assurance that can only come from you of our pardon. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Stand and let's sing this great hymn as a response to the sermon today. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater.